There are some who say that communism is the wave of the future. Let them come to Berlin. And there are some who say in Europe and elsewhere, we can work with the communists. Let them come to Berlin. And there are even a few who say that it's true that communism is an evil system, but it permits us to make economic progress. Lost the not Berlin in common. Let them come. Freedom has many difficulties. And democracy is not perfect. But we have never had to put a wall up to keep our people in to prevent them from leaving us. Welcome to 10 Minutes on Democracy. That moment of democracy inspiration was from another famous speech by a U.S. president in Berlin, John F. Kennedy delivering his famous I am a Berliner speech, which is among the most famous of Cold War speeches. Moving from 1963 to today, there's a lot to cover as we look at the state of democracy from further developments and implications of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the global and domestic repercussions, to ongoing moments of our culture wars and attacks on local democracy here in the United States. I'm Jason Franklin, Senior Advisor at One for Democracy, and today is Tuesday, March 15th. Let's dive in. First, I want to just talk about whether we're seeing a Biden bounce. As I talked about before the State of the Union, we often see a popularity increase in polls after a State of the Union address. And the normal discourse is, oh, look, this is a reset. And then a week or two later, poll numbers drop back down. And then we say, oh, look, it didn't matter. He's not resetting. Well, this year, we had a different experience. We had a State of the Union delivered as the United States was responding to Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. It re-scrambled, it scrambled the State of the Union itself, but it also reorganized the priorities for the Biden administration. And what we're seeing is really so far kind of a mixed bag of are we seeing a Biden bounce or not? We are seeing that Biden's approval ratings for his handling of Russia and Ukraine has been rising. It's risen actually five points since the start of the war in Eastern Europe more than two weeks ago, according to a new poll from Yahoo, and a big gain, 12 points among self-described independent voters. But we also see that almost 75% of Americans are unhappy with Biden's handling of inflation, which is also seen as the top priority or a top priority. So there's this kind of mixed dynamic. When you ask particularly around his handling of Russia and Ukraine, growing approval ratings, but growing frustration around inflation. And then we talk about where they intersect. So when we talk about the impact of sanctions on Russia, you're seeing actually widespread bipartisan support for Biden administration putting in place sanctions on Russia's oil and gas and willingness to even pay more for gas at home as a result. It's the kind of sentiment you rarely see in public opinion polls these days. 
it's bipartisan. The polls that I've looked at, they cut across race, region, income, party identification, and really driven by a desire to help Ukraine and punish Russia. If that type of polling continues, this response from the Biden administration both has major implications for how does the U.S. engage in the Russia-Ukraine conflict, but also for the course of U.S. democracy and the dynamics around our midterm elections. So important to pay attention to both for its implications for this moment of conflict and also for its implications for our democracy itself. You know, that, that poll I was mentioning said showed that 77% of people supported Russian sanctions. And even when they were asked, if gas prices go up, would you support it? Still 63% of people supported heavy sanctions on Russia's oil and gas industries. Really interesting to see how does this play out. If we always see historically presidential administrations gain in popularity and have support at the beginning of military conflict, but that support often wanes over the course of a military conflict. So the question is, what will be the arc of the engagement in Russia and Ukraine? And when we think about inflation, will inflation be seen as a justified result of preventing Russian invasion of Ukraine? Or will inflation be kind of separated in the minds of Americans as separate from the Russia-Ukraine dynamic? So will Americans blame Biden for gas prices as they've blamed past presidents, or will they blame Putin? That's really what it comes down to in a question of the implications for our political situation depend on where blame gets placed. You're also seeing a lot of other complicated dynamics, and we don't know how they'll play out. You know, the Iran nuclear talks are close to collapsing because of Russian demands. You're seeing real worrying posturing around chemical or biological warfare. Warnings about disinformation from Russia talking about U.S. chemical warfare as then what they would use as justification themselves to engage in chemical warfare. If we see chemical or biological warfare break out, it will change the course of this conflict and it will change the course of American politics over the coming months and potentially coming years in response. We're also seeing things like, is Western-style democracy being kind of revitalized because of this very conflict? The summit held by EU leaders at Versailles that was seen as very, very successful, you're seeing the EU kind of re-knit together and stand more strongly and push for democracy in a way that they haven't in the past, this could, ironically, an attack on Ukraine could be the resurgence of democracy or help support a resurgence of democracy more globally. Or it could be a death knell. We just don't know. We stand at that crossroads like we see the crossroads here in the United States for the future of our democracy. Looking away from Russia to other dynamics here in the country, we're also seeing kind of the ongoing battles of some very familiar culture wars that are taking shape, influencing the course of our democracy. Some big ones this last week, of course, the Don't Say Gay bill that was passed in Florida. You've seen surprisingly, well, sadly not surprisingly, GOP politicians following DeSantis's lead and being very proud of defending policies like the Don't Say Gay bill. When we step away from the policy itself, what we also have to think about is, does this change the dynamics of politics? Does this change dynamics of our democracy? So far, it's not. It's really reinforcing existing partisan and ideological divides. 
Similarly, you're seeing questions about how will the Supreme Court nomination play out? A lot of conversation about how Republicans are aiming to, quote, be polite as they cross-examine Judge Jackson during the nomination battle. Some of the off-color remarks that we just need to appear not too racist. It's a very telling comment that we need to appear not too racist because the assumption is by that Republican operative who was anonymous that Democrats will already see Republicans as racist and they just need to not be too racist in their cross-examination of Judge Jackson. If that's actually what's playing out, if we're seeing racism baked into this partisan divide, then we're not going to see any real reshuffle. And so the question becomes, will the Supreme Court nomination energize one part of the Republican base or the Democratic base more than the other? You've seen attacks on her as being weak on crime, but at the same time, the International Association of Chiefs of Police has just endorsed her, as has the Fraternal Order of Police. And so how will the dynamics of the defund the police movement or attacks on criminal justice or calls for reform and her past experience play out in these conversations, particularly in the next few months and defining some of the midterm narratives and how are we going to handle them? Uh, so far, not seeing any moments in some of the developments this week that are reshuffling or shifting dynamics of our democracy. Instead, we're seeing narratives and battles that are reinforcing long-established divides. The other thing to look at is that we're just seeing more and more examples of local attacks on democracy. I've been talking about these for months. If you've been listening to this podcast, you know what we are worried about. But when we see them actually taking place we get examples of what does this look like in practice. Some of the things we saw this week, real interesting article from 538 talking about the rise in local censures. So the fact that they did a deep dive investigation and they saw this dramatic increase in county level censoring of individual Republican office holders. 23 Republican office holders who were censored by their local county parties compared to only five Democratic censors. And on the Republican side, they're all tied to the 2020 election. They're mostly censoring a office holder for not believing the big lie, for not opposing the January 6th investigation. So the kind of dynamics of requiring fealty to the individual and the kind of dissonance between party politics and supporting democratic governance, we're seeing that play out and we're seeing the exact examples. We're also seeing the first examples of now in practice, the partisan takeover of the nonpartisan election apparatus. You know, the Washington Post did a really interesting, troubling report about Floyd County in Northwest Georgia, where this white, mostly Republican area that's elected Marjorie Taylor Greene to office has also now seen the takeover of the election apparatus, removing longtime election administrators and putting in more partisan leadership. The ripple effects of those types of movements, we've talked about them coming, they are now happening, and what that means for the fair administration of elections, is it possible to see the fair administration of an election when you see that type of takeover? More and more doubtful, more and more concerning, you know, throwbacks to Jim Crow regulations and the long fight to ensure the access to the ballot for everyone and the long fight to ensure fair counting of ballots once they're cast. Those are the type of small acts, but when they multiply and happen across the country, become the ripples that show the attacks on democracy that we're trying to fight. And they're really important for us to keep those in perspective and not 
ignore them because it's only this small Northwest Georgia County. It's only these local Republican County actions. Those actions add up and they are easy to miss and they're easy to ignore because they're small and individualized, but they are part of greater patterns that we really need to engage with. So that's what we're gearing up for. It's what I think all of us need to be watching and figuring out how can we contribute to a pushback that protects our democracy in the face of this death by a thousand cuts. So that's all for this week's unfortunately not so uplifting review of developments in our democracy. But the work continues. I will uh, look forward to talking to you again next week. I'm Jason Franklin, and thanks for listening to 10 Minutes on Democracy. Democracy.